It's interesting, I've heard the word perspective several times this morning, and something I realized knowing I was coming up here is that this is a change of my perspective. I would rather, frankly, be behind the scenes, that's actually what I do in my career, setting the stage for folks, and I don't always like to be in front of folks. But as you know by now, Pastor has asked seven of us to share the letters to the churches that we find in the book of Revelations. And shortly, we're going to be looking at the letter to Sardis found in Revelations 3, 1 through 6. But I'm not going to have you turn there quite yet. If any of you spend any time with me, you're going to find that I ask a lot of questions. Um, often, it's to get clarity about something somebody is saying um, or somebody's thoughts. Other times, it's just to simply gather information. It's helpful for me to understand, especially as I'm getting older, I don't hear as well, so sometimes I have to ask again for somebody to repeat something. At the end of the day, I often find myself personally questioning or examining myself. My thoughts, my motives, my words, and sometimes my actions. The truth is, I don't always like the answer that I find or what I discover. It puts me in a position to make a choice to continue down a specific path or to change. And I don't always like change. Today, in the letter to Sardis, we're going to be told that you're dead. Wake up, remember, and repent. There's only one way I know how to do that, and that's to examine yourself. Dear Heavenly Father, as we uh, open your word today, I ask that you give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You promise if two or more gather in your name, you'll be in our midst. I ask that you be present with us this day, that we would hear your Spirit, and that we would walk from this place different than when we came in. So I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to, have, uh, going to do something to help wake us up, because I need to get going here and get a little more peppy. Um, I'm going to say a phrase and have you complete the sentence. These are pretty easy. This is an old one. If it seems too good to be true... All right. A picture is worth... Except if you have Photoshop. I can change that. All right, so I'm going to get a little more spiritual. I can do all things through... Philippians 4.13. Jesus said, I am the way... Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? According to a survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center in Arizona Christian University, American adults today increasingly have adopted a salvation-can-be-earned philosophy. Generally speaking, 48% of adults believe that if a person is generally good and does good things in their life, that they're going to earn a way to heaven. One-third of adults, or 35%, disagree. The majority of Americans, 52% who classify themselves as Christians, are also adopting this work-oriented perspective. Now, even among churches whose official doctrines say that eternal salvation only comes from embracing Jesus Christ, the Savior, 46% of Pentecostals, 44% of mainline Protestants, 41% of Evangelicals, and two-thirds or 70% of Catholics 
have adopted this philosophy. So for the sake of today's illustration, I'm going to be generous and take the evangelicals 41% and say that 59% believe that Jesus is the way to salvation. So remember, 59% trust in Christ and 41 are counting on their own good works. I've heard it said that the figure might be more like 50-50. So let me set the stage for Sardis. It's commonly accepted that Revelation was written by John while he was on exile to the island of Patmos. That was around AD 95-96. Chapter 1 of Revelations makes it clear that this is Jesus' letter to the church. As a matter of fact, it's his personal message to the church. If you have a red-letter Bible, the words to the churches are written in red. So Sardis, like the other churches in Asia Minor, can be found in modern-day Turkey. You may have heard of the story or legend of the Greek mythological King Midas, the man who had the golden touch. Everything he touched turned to gold. It's said that he washed himself to get rid of this curse in a river near Sardis. The fact is that Sardis historically was rich in gold and silver. And it's believed to be the very first place in the world that they minted coins. Sardis is also known as Sardis the Impenetrable. Uniquely um, placed in its geography, it's surrounded by high cliffs with a narrow entrance. It was said that it could be guarded from large armies by a handful of men. Yet twice in its history, it fell due to the fact that its guards allegedly fell asleep at their posts a fact you would be very aware of if you lived in Sardis at the time. Finally, Sardis is a city half rebuilt by an earthquake in AD 17 by the Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar. It's approximately again the year 95, and Sardis is a melting pot of cultures, Jews and Greeks and Romans and others. The people of Sardis lived comfortably, especially for that day's standard, not unlike us in America today. There is no historical record of discord or persecution among the church of Sardis. It's even um, at a time when the other churches in Asia Minor were being persecuted. I've read that many believe that Sardis had become um, so culturally accepted. It was simply known as a church of good people blending well into the culture and they appeared to be active to all observers. So now with the stage set for Sardis, I'm going to ask us to do something else that we don't normally do in church. I'm going to ask you to use your imagination. What we're going to imagine isn't a story or a work of fiction. It's based on a real letter written to a real church filled with real people. Welcome to Sardis. Imagine that we're sitting today in the congregation of Sardis. I'm going to ask you not to open your Bibles yet, but to listen to the letter as it was given. Again, we know that John was banished to the island of Patmos. A letter has arrived by a messenger from him addressed to us. Just imagine that we're hearing this letter for the first time. I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand, as they did in the church, for the listening of the letter. Now keep in mind that we're excited to get this letter. It's from John, and we know everybody thinks highly of Sardis. 
And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and straighten what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know the hour I come against you. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I, can, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please be seated. So what would we do with that? I mean, think about that. If a letter came to us today and that was read to us, which it was, what do we do with that? We don't know exactly what the people of Sardis did. The good news is that within the letter, Jesus explains exactly how we should respond if we examine the six verses more closely. So now let's open up our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write the words of the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This is actually pretty straightforward. The angel or the messenger or a pastor of the church write the words of the one with the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, which is Jesus. Seven is a word in scripture that often refers to completeness or wholeness. Jesus had the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus also held the seven stars, the church. Another way to look at this might be that these letters are written to the complete church and are timeless. The characteristics assigned to the churches are still relevant today. So everything I've said so far brings me to my first point. We need to listen to the call of the church. We need to wake up. We need to look at the church realistically and remember the church is not a building, it's a group of people working together as one body. We need to remember the role of the individual member within that body and how it affects the whole. Once again, the application of this letter for us today requires us to examine ourselves. In a church body, you can find true or genuine believers you can find that's the 59%. You can find non-believers, which include what Alistair Begg terms unsaved believers, the other 41%. Listen to this from Truth For Life. While an unsaved believer sounds like a paradox, many who know about Jesus do not have a genuinely changed heart. Alistair Begg focuses a gospel call on such individuals, of identifying the barriers that keep us from true faith. One barrier is our good works, which we think we are secure. The other is our moral indignation, by which we think ourselves better than others. Whatever barrier you might have, we must remove that obstacle to faith and call upon Jesus Christ. With that in mind, verse 1 continues now that we know it's Jesus speaking. He says, I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive, 
but you're dead. This verse makes me think of Matthew 7.21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. There are over 300 references in the Bible to the word dead. In the New Testament, there are 140, and pretty much dead means dead. There are two types of death. There's physical death, being absent from the body, and there's spiritual death, having the absence of the Holy Spirit. Sardis was a body of believers operating without the presence of the Holy Spirit. And they didn't even seem to know it. How can something appear alive, or worse yet, think themselves alive, but be dead? John MacArthur used an interesting example. You might remember when you were in school that light travels at 186,000 miles a second. Scientists, or more specifically astronomers, use light years to measure the distances between stars. I'm going to paraphrase here. A star that is 33 years old, or excuse me, 33 light years from Earth, could have died 25 years ago. It's dead, but it appears shining in our night sky from a light of a brilliant past. That described Sardis. An interesting um, contrast to the other six churches. Of the seven churches, three, Jesus acknowledges their good works and then chastens them from what isn't good. In both Philadelphia, who is being persecuted, and Smyrna, who is about to be persecuted, he acknowledges what is happening and he encourages them. In Laodicea, who is neither hot nor cold, he's totally displeased, but this is different. He states a fact, you're dead. The essence of that is you're operating without the Spirit. Now, verse 2 provides both a warning and an opportunity. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The New King James uses the term, be watchful. In Sardis's history of falling asleep and not being watchful, it led to their fall twice. This statement would have been very clear to the congregation. They would have understand, or understood what would have happened if you weren't being vigilant. Being watchful is a clear warning, especially to any remnant or genuine believers, to rescue what is left. As a matter of fact, the suggestion that you could possibly strengthen what remains is a sign of hope. There's a clue now in verse 3 as we go to my second point. Remember and repent his command. Verse 3 continues, Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. What should we remember? What did we receive? The New King James reads, Remember therefore how thou received and heard and hold fast. David Jeremiah put it this way, hold fast usually refers to the word of God and helps us remember that if we're keeping the word, 
the Bible is being honored and taught faithfully. When a church abandons the Bible, it removes the Holy Spirit's primary tool for transforming, transforming believers into the image of Christ. Again, how do I apply this to my life? I need to remember what I have received and heard. But I'm also to ask, what am I holding fast to? My first question to myself might be, am I saved? The second question is, am I in alignment with God's word? And the third question I need to ask is, do I need to repent? Do I need to change my direction? Do I need to change my thinking and agree with God? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John, 1 John 9. If you've put your trust in Jesus alone, the 59%, are you being watchful? Are you being vigilant? Or do we have a tendency of being like a hamster on a reel, just being active, running, looking busy? We need to consciously consider who and what we're doing our activities for. Are we even considering the 41% in our own midst? This is essential. Work matters. We need to be vigilant and purposeful. Whatever you do, do it in word or deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and through him. Do you remember John F. Kennedy's famous quote, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country? He challenged every American to contribute in some way to the public good. We shouldn't be asking, what is the church going to do for us? Through programs or activities, etc. We should be asking, what can I be doing for the Lord in our church, in our church family, for his purpose? Remember, works are the fruit of the Spirit, and Spirit is life. Works apart from the Spirit have no life. They're dead. Works are only evidence of your faith and the Spirit in you. Verse 3 continues with a very clear warning. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour I come against you. Every reference in Scripture to coming like a thief refers to judgment. Jesus is warning us to wake up, be saved, be spirit-filled so that he doesn't come against us. If that feels scary, that's not a bad thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding, Proverbs 9.10. Which brings me to my next point. Don't lose heart. Our hope is in Christ, his promises. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis of people who have not spoiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. <clears throat> Hope for Sardis begins with you still have a few names who have not spoiled their garments. They will walk with me. This is an example of purity, of righteousness in Christ, God's remnant, for they are worthy only those who put their trust in Christ alone can be considered worthy. <clears throat> Isaiah 64, 6 reminds us, <clears throat> but we are like unclean things and our righteousness are like filthy rags. Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, none is righteous, not one. 
And Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, therefore anyone in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Only in Christ are we worthy and we will walk with him in white. Verse 5 continues with uh, even more clarity. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. But who are the conquerors? Those washed in the blood of Christ, the new creation. And what am I being washed of? My sin and my unrighteousness. At the end of Revelation 7.13, it says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So they are made white in the righteousness of Christ by his work on the cross. Verse 5 continues with this promise. I will never blot out the name. I will never blot out his name in the book of life. Again, to those who are saved, those are covered by the righteousness of Christ, their names will be written in the book of life. A book in which your name can never be removed. Eternal security. This is important. The reference to blotting out names comes from a government practice at the time when censuses and rosters were kept of the citizens within a city. They would remove their names upon death or a sin or crime against the state. God will never blot out the name of those who are his. Jesus continues with another promise at the end of verse 5. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Jesus personally promises to confess the names of those clothed in white before his Father and the angels. So how does Jesus conclude this letter? With verse 6. This is our call to action and my final point. Listen to what the Spirit says, which requires a response. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As I opened, I said, Sardis would be told to wake up, remember, repent. Are we awake? Do we remember what we've learned? On November 5th, 1983, my sister Linda married Jeff in a little Baptist church in Olmstead Falls, not far from here. I was 23 at the time, married less than a year with a four-month-old son. I considered myself a Christian. I was, was raised Catholic, and I was a pretty good guy. As a matter of fact, I was unknowingly leaning towards how Alistair Begg described moral indignation. I was thinking I was doing better than most of the folks around me. And the born-again believers I knew at work weren't that different than me. As a matter of fact, I thought they seemed hypocritical um, because I saw how they were. As a matter of fact, my ethics and my behavior was probably better in many cases than theirs. It also seemed arrogant to me to think that you could know for sure that you were going to heaven. I knew no one could actually be like Jesus, sinless, truly righteous. Don't get me wrong, I wanted to be, but it seemed like an unattainable goal. And I was simply doing my best with my own strength. Before that ceremony ended, the pastor shared the gospel. 
And he asked us to bow our heads, close our eyes. And yes, I knew I was a sinner. And yes, I believed that Jesus was God and he died for my sins and rose again. But I had never heard an invitation before. I can't remember exactly what he said. But I know there was something different in the message that I heard. I was the trust in Jesus' righteousness, not my own. That cut me to the core of my being. I began to weep, and I walked straight out the back of that church when that service ended past the receiving line because I didn't want anyone to see my tears. I didn't even totally understand what had happened. All I can tell you is, as much as I have gotten in the way of God over these past years, my life has been different. I believe if you're sitting here today and listening to my voice, you don't want to waste 30 minutes of your time. I believe you're longing to hear something from God. As a matter of fact, we just heard the words of Jesus Christ to the church. Whether you're the 59% or the 41%, I don't have to explain to you what it means to have that tug at your heart, to be pulled, that feeling you have in the core. You know what that feels like. What is the Spirit saying to you? Don't let another moment go by without responding to what he's saying. Right now, where you sit or stand, simply ask Jesus to give you the courage to respond to whatever the call is he has for your life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the cleansing power of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and for changing me. I ask your blessing upon everybody here that we would hear what you ask us to do. Give us the strength and courage in your name to respond however that is. As the ushers come forward, Lord, I ask you to multiply the gifts in our offerings and strengthen us this day to be good stewards for your will and for your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.